Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 22nd episode of Across the Isle, your guide to theatre and the arts in Melbourne. I'm Philip Teal, and it's good to be back in our little studio with producer Ron and my beloved Carla Donnelly. Hi, family. Hi. We've had, <laughs> we've had a little winter break, but we are back with a vengeance. You can expect three episodes dropping into your feed over the next little while. So prepare yourselves for a fully fledged debrief and set of discussions about what Melbourne has served us in this autumn period. But today, we're going to talk about two intriguing productions, both with a somewhat historical slant. The Rabble's Joan at Theatre Works and Emily Goddard's This Is Eden at 45 Downstairs, developed with the support of Hot House Theatre in Wodonga. As always, we have embargoed our thoughts until this moment, so I'm keen to get Carla to spill about these shows, both of which have really resonated with me in complex ways. Mm. But first... Drum roll, a mini launch. Yes, June is fundraising month for our podcast. It's been two whole years since we started this monthly talk about theatre, filling a significant gap in the critical landscape of this arts-loving town. A third season and a third year will need funding for us to be produced, distributed, and for us to be at the shows that we really want to talk about. This is where you, our beloved audience, come in. As you listen today, please take a look at our fundraising campaign at Possible.com. Possible, friends of the podcast, P-O-Z-I-B-L-E. Search for Across the Aisle there or see our social media feeds for links. The rewards, I think, are quirky and super attractive some with limited numbers. So in addition to our annual subscription to the podcast with secret intel each month, uh, there are opportunities to send us to shows of your choice or even join us here in the studio to talk about your own life as a culture vulture at (laughs) Intermission. I know it takes a few reminders to translate goodwill into good works, but please let this be something you consider at the end of this financial year. With your generosity, we'll be back in your theatres and earbuds for another 12 months. Thanks so much, as always, to everyone for listening. Now let's dim the lights. Well, I just want to say on the campaign that there are some great rewards. We may need to highlight it further on, maybe in um, coming soon, that we do give a digest of what we're going to see each month before we see them before the episode so people can play along that's part of the benefits of membership but we'll talk a little bit more about that in the coming soon section i think subscription is my favorite reward yes it's a club yeah (laughs) you're an insider yes so here we are back at theater works carla for our first show my bike seat is wet why did you make me do this (laughs) Oh, Philip. Well, you'll get warm with the fan, with the flames of Joan. So Joan is a teenage girl, a virgin soldier who will convince an army of men that she hears the voice of the divine. Her body will become the site of a nation's anxieties and hopes she will burn. So this is the rabble who are one of my favourite art makers in this city or the world and I say art makers specifically because although their medium is theatre or performance work it is so much more it is still images it is acts of penance which has a lot of their work has been sort of really physical performance art for the artists so whenever they have a show obviously we go and see it 
the show, I don't really know how to sort of launch into this. It was their first show in quite a while. Mm. And Joan is a subject of immense depth and lust and love and, I don't know, history for me. Uh, so the, I was really curious to see what they did with this show. It was very sparse. The sort of first three quarters of the show really was just silent movement of four versions of Joan across the stage. What did you think about this show? I don't really know where to go because I want to describe what happens, but also at the same time, to me, this show wasn't about a show. It was an invocation of Mm. Joan. Mm. And the performers, particularly Dana, um, Dana Milton's, who was the primary Joan throwing herself on that pile of sticks, bleeding. Mm. This show would have been a physical penance for Joan. I can understand why in their literature they've written that they felt her with them. I felt it was more of a religious offering of them and I think that they would have had a much more significant experience from doing the show rather than us watching the show. Interesting. It becomes a kind of observed ritual. Yeah. And the audience becomes bystanders to some kind of um, act of penance, as you said. Yeah. Um, I was reminded of early Marina Abramovich-type performance art practice of throwing bodies at things and um, making contact in exactly the scene you describe, where a person is launching herself at spikes over and over again, it has a devastating impact on the audience to witness those things as other performers simply observe or help Mm -hmm. in that ritual. The show also took a long time to open. There were gestures that were very minimal and sounds that were essentially just the breath for minutes after minutes at the start of the performance so that you were drawn in yourself as an audience member to a kind of physicality of the body and the idea that the eye was dominating visually and that the breath was dominating sonically Mm. really took you as close as you could get to sharing that embodied experience with the performers even if later all you can do is watch. It's true that towards the end of the production, there was a bit more language, more direct connections between the story of Joan as a signifier and other stories of bodies and women. But that first three quarters of the production was amazingly immersive and compelling as theatre. And I think that from what I've seen of The Rabble, we've reviewed another one of their shows, The Bleak Midwinter. The connection between the two is exactly what you started out describing, that they want the theatre to be religious. They want the audience to be exposed to something that is actually a thing Mm. rather than a representation of a thing. There's an authenticity and a depth to the kind of experience that the bodies of the performers are having. And Joan of Arc was just the perfect giant sign Mm. uh, to be exploring these things within. See, there's a lot of that I'd like to talk to you about this because, you know, my Catholic heritage, my Catholic culture, I found this production very Catholic. Yeah. And I think it was an appropriate invocation to Joan. I've gone through many periods of my life being completely obsessed with Joan and just spending hours and days and days thinking about her, reading about her, dreaming about her. There's something really potent about Joan herself, but also as a macrocosm, as an image of women's struggle 
for recognition as intellectuals and warriors mm. and physically powerful beings. I didn't actually like this show, but I think it goes beyond the realms of like or hate or dislike or find boring. I felt like the two portions, the spoken portion and the performed portion were too disparate to be in the same production. But at the same time, the performance and the ideas that it presented itself spurned me into this rage Mm. for weeks that really felt like I had been past the spirit of Joan Mm. or something, some kind of transmutational force had happened to me. So although I didn't feel anything watching the show, which I found strange, (laughs) the weeks after I was transformed. Wow. Now, you're a religious person. Mm. Mm. You were raised in a religious Mm. household. Did this speak to you Mm. in a religious way or was it art artifact? Well, what you're describing in terms of impact does seem closer to a liturgical than a theatrical process. Mm. Something that you go to not for any kind of immediate aesthetic buzz or hit, but as a sustaining practice that connects to your daily life, perhaps even more than to something more elevated or occasional than Mm. that. And so it's fascinating to think about a theatre company like The Rabble offering this to a public um, and for that resonance to be felt by you for days and weeks afterwards is is remarkable. But to me, not surprising insofar as those things I was describing about breath and eye and immersion and suffering are transcendental, like they're very large aspects of our humanity. If we're going to be given a hyper-concentrated dose of those things, then that will have an impact, that will reverberate. Yeah, and it wasn't particularly like it was part of a triptych, so to speak, because I had seen Hannah Gadsby's show on the Friday night or the Saturday night with you. We saw this and then we saw the next show we're going to talk about, This Is Eden, and peppered in between that I was started watching The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> so That reminds me of when I was teaching Medea, Psycho and Macbeth all at the same time <laughs> and just kept making stabby motions. <laughs> so it felt to me as a part of the canon of women's work and women's stories and having been just completely drenched in all of these works over a two-week period, I was on the point of bursting into tears and screaming for a couple of weeks because the thing that the Joan show really showed me was in terms of the performing arts, you know, the thing that I couldn't stop thinking about was a few years ago, three or four years ago, I went and saw a play about Mark Rothko at the MTC. It was an okay play. It wasn't amazing. But seeing Joan and seeing Hannah Gadsby and seeing This Is Eden and watching The Handmaid's Tale, I thought, well, no wonder these men who run these institutions do not want women to produce art because it's just a primal scream whenever they open their mouths about rape and beating and suffering and being held back. And then I just thought, why are we still rehashing these stories, apart from the fact that they still connect with us because of our oppression, but at the same time, when will we be 
so developed that there will be a play about a female painter who made paintings about just whatever. It had nothing related to do to her suffering. And that just seems to me 100 years away, 150 years away. And that was the rage that Joan put inside me. Fantastic. Yeah. And and so intriguing because I was going to ask you about that word rage and I understand what you're talking about more now. There's something counterintuitive going on though, isn't there? Because these works of art are satisfying. I mean, when, when you attend something um, like that cathartic um, farewell to comedy from Hannah Gadsby. Uh, I think it's being heard. It's being heard and shining light, and I don't think that we're in the farther along enough in our process of um, actualization for it to not be angry, mm. but that is a part of it, and mm. that's where I can let it rest mm. because I say, well, eventually we will get to the next stage, which will be maybe not acceptance, but maybe talking about a few different other things. Mm. It's a yeah. pathway. Yeah. And so while we can be deeply demoralised about how early on this journey we find ourselves, we can nonetheless see it as a sequence, you know, that these voices are being heard in a concentrated way, like you experienced over that weekend in Melbourne. And they are actually being given a a venue. Mm. They are being given outlets. And there's a sense of relief. I mean, speaking as a man, I am getting access to something that has been withheld and witnessing and hearing these stories and utterances is compelling. Mm. Um, it is it is preferable to silence. Mm. And <laughs> and if, if in addition to that, it can be the beginning of a process towards uh, more subtle stories or more nuanced positive stories, great. So I see it as good in two ways. Yeah. Despite the fact that it does lead to in this moment, a sense of despair and sadness about the voices that have not been heard. I mentioned Medea earlier. That play contains exactly this complaint of the the women in that chorus say that the stories of women have not been told. Mm. It's only because men are in control of storytelling that we have lost all of these amazing things that might have been said about women. And that's 5th century BCE. So although I felt nothing watching the show and didn't understand the theatrical direction it took from being a silent physical protestation almost Mm. to, you know, a verbal call to arms. It destroyed me Mm. and rebuilt me in a lot of ways. And I think that that was all that they could ever have wanted from mm. presenting that work. Mm. So and maybe that's, that's why we keep going back to the rubble. <laughs> yes. I mean, they always make challenging work, particularly for women. Mm. And I just, I'm so grateful that we have it. It is intermission. Hooray, finally. Let's get a jug of something. Let's share it out <laughs> into plastic cups. Do you think the snack situation needs to be addressed at theatres? Well, I think that this sort of early dinner situation needs to be attended to. Oh, my God, don't. I need something filling other than sandwiches. Yeah, but even the sandwiches are pretty great. And they sell out. Learn. (laughs) You've been serving sandwiches at the recital centre for a few years now. Get some fucking food trucks down there. (laughs) Come on, this is Melbourne. Actually, there have been a few food trucks outside the Malt House. 
Um, but only during comedy festival and other sort of special. And there's that pizza guy outside of the art house. Okay, okay. The art centre, sorry. We need an app. We need we need foodneartheaters.com. Yeah, mm. yeah, because it's it's bleak. What's that Japanese place that used to be up near the library? That's sort of tucked in behind the malt house now. That wasn't very helpful. Well, we did get to go to the comedy theatre this month. So. Yes. Well, that's in the thick of it. You, yeah. you eat well So we there. got to eat. We oh, got to yeah. eat well. We, we definitely I actually ate. went to the comedy theatre a couple of times. What was the other thing you saw? Uh, I went to the alt-right. Uh, what? W-R-I-T-E. Oh. Oh. Roxanne Gay, <laughs> George Saunders, uh, John Safran, and another hey, lady that famous. I don't... I don't know her. I should know her after seeing it. That was fantastic. Mm. But let's talk about Nanette. Oh, Hannah. The other thing we went to at the comedy Yes, theater. yes, yes, yes. That was ritualistic as well. Hannah Gatsby. It was a ritual farewell to comedy. I'm not going to be funny anymore. No, and I f- it, that was, I mean, just to get astrological, so Capricorn, mm. so depressing mm. and so funny at the same time. Mm. <laughs> let's laugh mm. <laughs> and go kill ourselves later. Yeah, and the people who gathered were the people who needed to be there. You know, we were well, among friends. preaching to the converted, though, I think a little bit. That. But I think that the show is touring so much okay. that it's going to reach yeah. a lot of people that need to be reached. The homophobes. The homophobes, but also, like, the internalised homophobes. Mm. Um, yeah, there was so much so much about the shame of closeted culture and the way that's reinforced. And I think that there was really good um, joining the dots of when you when you tell people it's not okay to be themselves and you know you can imagine whatever that is mm. as children this is the lifetime repercussions of the things that mm-hmm. happen. Mm. But I think the thing that I found most fascinating about that show was, apart from it being heartbreaking, was um, that, you know, like all comedians are all like nerds because mm. comedy has very specific formulas and they're like comedy nerds. Mm-hmm. They're very studied and almost liturgical in mm. a way with their craft. But for her to say that, you know, my whole life I've been telling only two parts of the story because that's the only thing that comedy facilitates, Mm -hmm. which is the beginning and the middle, but I've never told the end, which was, you know, and then I got bashed Mm. or, and then I, you know, contemplated killing myself. Mm. Um, I found that really incredible. She went structural, didn't she? Talking about how the joke releases tension. And in this show, she didn't always release the tension. She let it build and let it uh, fester. And it was really masterful, Mm. I think. Mm. That show was absolutely incredible. Mm. And that was the first time you'd seen it. Yeah, it was like, oh, (laughs) guess I missed something. (laughs) (laughs) Profound spiritual connection and goodbye. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Well, she is touring that show Mm. everywhere, thankfully. Yeah, check it out. So if it's coming near you, go and see it. And we saw our friends from um, Slate. (gasps) What team are you? Slate Culture Gab Fest. Steven. Ah! (laughs) Although I am so... (laughs) I just want to be Dana in a yes, lot of ways. Yes. She's so ethereal. Well, I have been team Julia Turner from the start. And when I saw the way that she kind of pointed her high heel in like the best, most bossiest <laughs> boss way ever seen on a stage, 
She just owns conversation. She is such a generous thinker and host, and she's she's idiosyncratic. She's eccentric. We're talking about the Slate Culture Gabfest live show, by yeah. the way, <laughs> like the podcast that started cultural podcasts, like ours and like many others in Melbourne. Um, having them in Melbourne was so good. Wheeler Centre really got them going, like got them in touch with our local critics um, on stage at the Wheeler Centre in a in a show that you can see at their podcast, here at their podcast as well, Mm -hmm. um, with Cerise Howard, Mel Campbell and them talking. Um, But to see them up close from the second row where we nerdily perched. Oh, my God, because I never do first row. Sure. Phillips, chagrin. But also, um, like, I'm I'm such a wog and I really want to see how people move their bodies when they talk. Yeah. That's a really – that's such a key missing element for me. And – so two things. One, of course, you love a power top, uh-huh. who is Julia. Thank you. Two, of course, I love a power bottom, which is Steven, yes! who just defers so to two, two powerful women the whole time <laughs> and is just there for them. But also the thing I came out of it was Team Julia because her gesticulation is mm-hmm. actually all over the place. She's such a physical talker oh, yeah. and I would never have expected that from her. It was divine. Whereas Dana, very contained. I know, but I expected that from her. Yeah. She's like a willowy, With her olive a shoes. willowy wisp. Yeah. <laughs> Come down from the heavens. We haven't said anything about what they actually said, but, you know, who cares? There was mass objectification going on in the room. Delightful. It was beautiful. Mm. Thank God. And I learnt that a live show for a podcast is a thing that works, so watch out, Melbourne. Oh, yeah. Coming to a stage near you. Uh, Ooh, on that note. We've got to go. Stages. Our second show this month was This Is Eden at 45 Downstairs, 1839 Cascades Female Factory, Hobart Town. In a solitary cell on the edge of survival, a sleek little savage waits alone in the darkness. So this is performer and theatre maker Emily Goddard's production, directed by Susie D. They call it an anti-bonnet drama, which I think is just fantastic, Um, celebrating the resistance of female convicts from Van Diemen's land. They say in the program note that the French clowning technique of Buffon is used, so ridiculing powerful people by exaggerating them, treading a fine line between the grotesque and charming. Uh, which, Which sums up one element of the production nicely, because you entered as if you were on a tour of some kind of Tasmanian site. And I think most of the audience at 45 Downstairs... Or just downstairs, convict heritage. Convict heritage. Generic convict yes. heritage. Yeah. It's like you'd pulled up in, I don't know, some minor town with a historic bridge and, you know, some tunnel-related jail cell that you could tour with a loyal local who liked dressing up, yeah. giving you the introduction. <laughs> yes. um, and, and I recognised Emily Goddard straight away and had to think, well, how is she going to take it from this sparkly, nerdy historian Jane, or whatever she was called, yes. to that thing that I've just described about solitary, darkness, mud, confinement. Um, but what she did was just change, essentially. She took the audience in, in chirpy mode, and then came back in animal mode, yeah. you know, telling the story only in a kind of um, fragmented way. And again, like with Joan, many of the elements of the production were experiential. So the dripping of water, 
the disgustingness of the food, uh, the visceral effect of being sort of spat at as you are trapped listening to a man giving you a sermon when you're a convict. So scene by scene, we had this uh, physical experience of containment, isolation, and vulnerability Mm. as well. It was such a successful example of a one-person show. Goddard had clearly thought about the form of the one-person show and its risks and had realised things about it that made her show much more successful than some other one-person shows that I've seen. Um, It was broken into sections. She used the audience in interesting ways, in ironic ways. One troubling or a couple of troubling moments in the production come to mind, though, um, about Indigenous people. Um, those those sections didn't quite land or didn't quite connect oh, no, as I thought authentically. They did. Tell me about that. Because oh. she sort of quizzed the audience about the names of Indigenous people from Tasmania, highlighting that there was a lack of knowledge, that there was a silence. Yeah, but she did that as in like an intermission. She went back into her Jane the Bonnet yes. lady to come out and talk to the audience about what they thought about the play. Mm. And, you know, and by... Uh, and you know, like at the beginning, Jane stands around her shit convict map of Tas- of Australia made out of fucking Hessian sacks or something mm. like that, with this, you know, just this crap display, <laughs> and you know, is very um, into her colonial heritage history. But this character of Jane is just this perfect encapsulation of this white erasure yeah. of. Aboriginal Australia, of even proper colonial history. It's like, oh, these were bad people and Uh we put them in prison and (laughs) then they were released and they were your ancestors Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. that, I think that was the kind of um, engagement with our really fucking dark past. Which, Which is interesting because Emily Goddard's own ancestors, it seems, may have been female convicts because at the end of the show she steps a little bit out of character to note that. So her own Jane-ness as a historical figure herself might be something that's being explored in that sort of messiness between the two characters. But when Jane says, oh, but I don't know what the Aboriginal Mm. people were from this part, it's like, does anybody else know? Mm. No one. Absolutely. And and so we were successfully brought in as... We were uh, shamed. Yeah. We were appropriately shamed, I believe. Uh Of course, I was into that, but, you know, yeah. (laughs) Okay, keep going with the introduction. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. That's, I, I, th- I think we're into the thick of it now. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the show kind of um, once we had entered into the more realistic, dark element of the production, successfully showed us a kind of oppression of an individual and her modes of resistance started getting explored. Yeah, we don't have the name of the convict that she was portraying here, unfortunately. So, yeah, one-woman show, we all know how I feel about one-person plays. No, this was brilliant. Mm. And her level of acting skill and performance, this was one of the best shows I've seen, I think, ever or in 10 years or I can't even Mm. calculate it. Not only for the production values, which were superb, but also because it really hits the sweet spot of everything that I'm completely passionate about. I loved that element of really juicing up the audience to really just fucking cut their heads off. Like have this 
colonial character of Jane, you know, jovially kind of like bring everyone into the audience. Everyone's like, oh, this I think we liked her, didn't a we? A bit of a romp. Yeah. I thought this was the drama. Oh, mm-hmm. maybe we were wrong. <laughs> we sit down and then the show begins. Uh-huh. And the set was absolutely extraordinary. Mm. Uh, this sort of square, you know, um, cell with a wrought iron, with like a, a iron bed with no mattress. That That's was Romany used, Harper, the set was designer. was used in extraordinary ways. And we've got the drip, drip, drip. And... Emily just transforms mm. into this wild-like creature. I think um, if any of you have seen Susie D's work previously, all of her work up until this point has been working towards this mm. because this was the perfection of all of her stagecraft. If we think about things, the stories that she's attracted to, mm-hmm. like shit, mm. um, animal, mm-hmm. the one yes. that we <clears throat> reviewed previously. And Emily was just... So absolutely extraordinary and funny and the characterizations of everybody involved in these colonial women's histories, the layering, the intellectual layering of this was phenomenal because you think, oh, I'm a left-wing person, I completely agree with you. No one in that audience knew the Aboriginal Mm. tribes of three or four different Mm. places that she quizzed them. Mm. (laughs) And and, and the... I mean, we've talked a little bit about physicality and ritual, visceral experiences. Her technique of acting is something that I hadn't seen done to quite this extent, a kind of rhythmic um, overacting, yes. which on the surface sort of makes you think, well, what's going on here? This feels a bit sort of unrealistic. But because she maintains it, she goes the full distance with it. You're eventually in the moment yeah. with her. It's a different way into the real, um, a kind of clown-like way into the real so that when she um, performed this terrifying pulpit scene by upending the bed and becoming this terrifying Protestant preacher, it was like a scene out of Moby Dick, not just because literally there is a similar kind of raving sermon delivered at the start of that, but because of the immensity of the impact, the way that we were sort of drawn into something really personal, really individual, solitary, literally, but at the same time, utterly nightmarish, you know, the monster within a system, you know, the way that these evil characters in these contexts just became the haunting figures that you experience visiting sites like Port Arthur and others. Yeah. Very, um, very authentic, surprisingly. It was literally like watching someone jump off a cliff, Mm. watching her perform. She just went there Mm. and... You know, that preacher scene where we all had to stand up and sing oh, him. Oh, did. I remember. <laughs> I did it wholeheartedly. Like, yeah. I was there. Like, yeah. I jumped off the cliff after her. Yeah. And I think a lot of that was also really interesting in terms of even if you do know some stuff, you mainly know about colonial or convict men's history. You don't mm-hmm. know anything about convict women's history. Convict women, it was just this cycle of abuse. And so the character is in prison because her freelander, freeholder, got her pregnant. Mm. So, of course, the woman of the house sent her back to the female factory. Mm-hmm. And just these women were would have been on just this constant cycle of sexual abuse, bearing or having miscarriages or bearing dead children, being sent back, sexual abuse, just this absolutely nightmarish cycle. 
And I think taking it from this one person's point of view that is a relatively unknown story was really effective because a lot of people don't know the convict women's history. Like Caroline Chisholm, nobody understands Mm. where she came from. So Caroline Chisholm started the immigration department in Australia because she saw a woman, basically what would happen was to combat the threat of homosexuality in Australia, they just started rounding up women off the street and imprisoning them. So women who were probably straight walkers or just poor women Mm. or people who were sleeping rough, they just rounded them up and put them on ships and started sending them to Australia. And they would walk off the ship and all the men would be waiting at the harbour and they would just run to the boat and take the women and they would be their sex prisoners. So Caroline Chisholm would see this happening. She was a very educated forward-thinking woman and she saw a woman that she knew from her town that she used to live in come off the boats Mm. and that really stuck with her and then three months or six months later she went on holiday I say that in air quotes to Parramatta and she was walking along the river and she saw the same girl trying to drown herself Mm. to kill herself from everything that she'd endured since she had been captured I mean these women were sex slaves Mm. so there's so much history there and so I think that just taking it from this, you could take it from any point yeah, yeah, <laughs> of yeah. these stories, but to take it from this more sort of simple story I thought was much more effective. Well, then she can say things like 25,000 female convicts as a number yes, and it means something. And you can you multiply Because you've got your yeah. one yeah, exactly. from which to do the sum. Yeah. Um, whereas 25,000 means nothing until you've got some access to an individual story. And in some ways, the more generic, the better. If you, want to, if you want to have that sort of data-based historical sweep, which I think Goddard mm. did actually aim for and, and pinpoint here. Yeah. Thank you so much for picking this. This was absolutely extraordinary. 45 Downstairs delivers again. And Emily Goddard, you are an absolute talent. Thank, Thank you. you for telling the story. Coming soon. Well, coming soon is our next episode, really, in a couple we of weeks. We are coming so. <laughs> very soon. We are coming very soon. And let's let's reveal something about our next episode. <gasps> special guest. Oh, yes, we'll have a special guest. Who has come to both shows with us. Yes, it's very exciting. We're going to have a three-way discussion about Ooh. two productions that we collaborated on choosing. So look out for that. Yes, it's about us coming soon because we will be back for another season of Across the Isle. <laughs> Do you want to talk about two years, just briefly? I I think that we... Have, let's reflect on coming we, we, soon. Well, spontaneously, let's have some spontaneous reflection. I think that we have shown that there is room for us. I think we've shown yeah. that in a city like Melbourne, there is not only one little gap, but a whole lot of space sure. for, for critical discussion, reflection, processing remembering yeah. the the cultural products that we consume in this city. I mean, lots of what was being discussed in Melbourne at the Wheeler Centre when the Slate Culture Gab Fest visited was about criticism, and there was a sense that we latched onto these Americans because, well, who we do we latch it. onto here? Um, as everything seems to be sort of devolving in the media, we need to be building some alternative okay. way of reflecting on, in our case, theatre and the arts. So I think that we are doing something that is necessary and good. I believe that we are doing civic service, of course, (laughs) particularly for the arts. I a thousand percent agree with you, and I don't really have much more to add to that, except if you like our show, tell other people. Oh, that's nice. You know, spread it around. Spread it. Teach people how to listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know. Mm. 
so yeah, just promote us because yep. I feel like the only people that listen to us are makers and yeah, well, it's a bit it's, of a lost opportunity. I, I, th- I think that our um, listeners, I mean, they know better than we do, but I do think that there is buy-in. You know, it's actually nice to be a niche. I think that... You know, in a city that's going to get UNESCO heritage listing for being a literary city, it's really nice to be targeting as directly as we target. Sure. Yeah. Although there are also people who listen, and I hear from these people, um, who are going to the theatre a little bit more mm. than, than they used to, and maybe they don't really go that much. And then there's a third group with lots of Venn diagram type crossover. There's a third <laughs> group who sort of thinks, well, um, I... I'm not a theatre goer and that's okay because listening to people, processing ideas about what they have seen is is good too. Sure. Hanging out in the foyer, yeah. you know, or outside the art centre having a coffee. Good times. That is it for this month. Thank you so much for listening to our episode. You can contact Carla and me at us at acrossisle.com or on our Facebook page Across Isle or via our Twitter account at Across Isle. Thank you to Shaq West and Mark Barrage for our sound and music. And thank you to all the artists whose work we willingly consumed this month. We can't stop thinking about you. Without you, we'd have to combat homosexuality. <laughs> See you very soon for our next episode. And thank you in advance for your support at Possible.com. Make a pledge, please, and tell your friends about it. Subscribe. And see you next time. Bye. Bye.